Welcome to the Mailer Campbell podcast. This is a series of discussions and interviews designed to provide coaches with inspiring learning content. This episode features an honest and frank conversation with Richard Martin. Richard is the author of the book, This Too Will Pass, Anxiety in a Professional World, published in November 2018, and his passion is to reduce the stigma around mental illness and improve the conversation about mental health. Richard shares a wealth of practical advice about how to do this, so I hope you'll find this podcast valuable. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Richard Martin today. So Richard, a warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So Richard spent the first 20 years of his career as an employment lawyer in London. He was a partner at Jones Day. Then he moved to be part of the management committee at Speechley Bircham, where he headed up a large employment law team. All that changed in 2011 when Richard experienced a serious mental breakdown, which resulted in time spent in hospital and a lengthy recovery process. That process led to Richard's current passion for reducing the stigma around mental illness and enabling conversation about mental health. So Richard, I'm really interested to let you tell us how your career has changed and um, to tell us a little bit about what led to you writing your first book, which I know you released in November of 2018. So thank you so much for agreeing to share this insight with us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. So, yeah, how's my work changed? The, I suppose it's in a number of ways. The the nature of the work I do clearly has changed quite dramatically. So, previously, I, as well as having management responsibilities, um, I had my own practice advising clients, both employers and employees, on employment law issues, workplace problems, which was high pressured and demanding and all the rest of it. So the nature of what I do has changed considerably. Now I spend a good deal of my time providing training to organisations around what mental health is about, um, helping people understand their own mental health, how they're feeling, how they're thinking, uh, so that they can take better care of themselves, but also then with managers and other responsible people in organisations to help them have appropriate conversations with people around them in order to support them and enable them to to maintain health and, and to be of their best, I suppose. So uh, alongside the training work, we do a couple of other things. First of all, I do coaching work, which uh, obviously is largely a one-to-one exercise supporting individuals in helping them deal with particular issues. I tend to not be coaching the sort of high-flying executives, but more people who are facing difficulties of different kinds. Mm -hmm. Um, That feels more where my niche is. But we also do a lot of work around conflict resolution, which I suppose does have a the the biggest overlap with what I used to do. Uh, So conflict resolution in the workplace, trying to help people understand why they are in conflict with each other or with the organisation that they work for, and exploring their thinking, some of the assumptions they may be making, et cetera, to try to help them understand the basis and therefore a way out of it. Um, and I think that uses both my experience as an employment lawyer uh, and as an individual and as a manager in an organization, but also then the skills from um, coaching. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. But the, I suppose the biggest change, I think, between what I used to do and what I do now and, and is, is the sense of purpose. And I think one of the problems that's one of the realities that uh, exists in lots of professional organizations is that somehow along the way we've lost some of that sense of purpose that brought us into what we do. And certainly in the work I do now, uh, that sense of purpose is very much at the forefront of all that we do. Um, the organization I work for, Berndine, is very much purpose-led, values-led. Hmm. And as a result, we are also, I'm also able to get involved in various other initiatives. Also, my book, which you mentioned. So I've had, uh, when I was first ill, or when I first realized how ill I was, I started writing a diary, um, which at the time, initially, was a, a reminder to myself of what had happened. I found remembering things very difficult. So it was a kind of a, a useful place to store thoughts and experiences. Uh-huh. Um, also, I think, to to write things that couldn't be said elsewhere, if that makes sense. So to, to explore some of my more difficult feelings that I probably couldn't talk to anybody else about at the time. Um, but very quickly, the the idea grew in my head that this might this diary might have some value at some stage later in the day later in uh, later in life so i kind of sat there in my documents folder on my computer for many years until um a couple of years ago i thought oh and i suppose that the main motivation for, for writing it writing the book was the power of storytelling and the the, the recognition or that the understanding of just how much people can benefit from hearing other people's stories. I had read various people's memoirs. Uh, I'm involved in a campaign called This Is Me, which is something that the Lord Mayor of London has promoted, which is all about using the power of storytelling to break down stigma and to encourage discussion. And it was born of that, I think, that I thought right now is the time to to get that diary out and and make it into a story uh, to help people understand what's going on for themselves, but also to help people around them to have a better understanding of what's going on and be more able to support them. Yeah, excellent. Incredible forethought to think that you're writing down your experiences, you know, at at a time like that, I imagine, not just to understand and process that for yourself, but maybe as a resource that would be helpful later. So we're incredibly lucky to be on the receiving end of that insight. I think it's amazing. Well, thank you. Um, One of the things that I, as I said, I I read memoirs at the time. What I was conscious of was that there wasn't anything from someone like me. So there were some celebrity memoirs. There were a couple of journalists who experienced problems and and they were useful, but it didn't feel like it was about me um, or people like me. And so I think part of it was to write the book that I would have wanted to have read, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Yes. And I'd like, if I may, to to go back in time a little to the time before you realised you were ill. And how did you actually become aware that all wasn't really well? That question has got various different levels of answer, I think. From a very personal perspective, I had always had what I had loosely called funny turns during my life. I'd had times when I had experienced a sensation of feeling slightly out of body and and strange. Mm. Um, And these had been a fairly regular occurrence from when I 
was very young and I had always associated those with being tired and so I just got used to taking myself to bed but those and those moments tended to be many months apart um, but in the sort of run-up to May 2011 when I realized just how well I was those became more regular so those were a bit of a a warning sign but I think an honest answer would be that I was aware in the back of my mind of feeling uh, under extreme pressure of feeling quite panicky of feeling quite irritable mm. of feeling um, at my wits end that I uh, yeah was at full capacity and had been for um, some period of time but I think I probably suppressed those thoughts and those realizations because I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't really know what they were called. I was scared of them. And probably some of the stigma that still exists and still existed then around mental illness meant that it was something that I really didn't want to have to confront. Right. My wife, or my my then wife, we've separated since, but she, uh, she would say that it was as if I was an elastic band becoming increasingly stretched and that from her perspective, it just felt inevitable that it was going to snap at some stage. She wrote some lines that I put at the front of my book, which described life as if she was living on the, as if she'd built a house on the the slopes of a volcano that um, was kind of inevitably going to erupt at some stage. So I think there were, I mean, there were lots of kind of warning signs had I been more aware and better understanding of uh, of mental health, uh, but also had there been less uh, stigma around the subject. I see. And in a way, you sharing that experience as broadly as you possibly can is a way of making sure that people who come after you do have a record of what what builds up to that and what that feels like, uh, you know, as the person who's experiencing the breakdown and, you know, the fact that it is perfectly normal and it happens to lots of other people. Is, is that a correct assumption? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the key messages that we talk about a lot in training is that we all have a state of mental health. Mental health is on a spectrum. And what we need to try to be more aware of is where we are on that. And if we are experiencing symptoms, warning signs that things might not be right, to, to actually notice them and do something about them. Because if one just carries on, then the strong likelihood is you're going to head further into a, uh, an unhelpful, unhealthy direction along that spectrum, and it's going to get worse. And so the sooner one recognizes that there are problems and, and then does something about it, the better. Yeah. yeah. I, I use an analogy with cancer a lot, but first of all, we we never used to talk about cancer. We used to talk about the C word and now we're much more comfortable talking about cancer and that's a sort of journey we need to make with our mental health. But particularly with cancer, we're told to check our bodies out on a regular basis, have a good feel around for lumps. Yes. And the sort of equivalent in our mental health, what are those lumps? What are the warning signs? And, and if we notice something, actually to do something about it um, rather than just to think, oh, it'll be all right, I'll just carry on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So... During your hospitalisation and recovery process, in what way were you encouraged to confront and talk about your experience? Inevitably, when one is speaking to psychiatrists and others, uh, there is a desire on their part to to understand and to hear 
what has happened in order that they can both diagnose and also, more importantly, help support recovery. The hospital I was in, the Priory, is a, is a fascinating place for all sorts of reasons. I suppose the first point being that for those who haven't experienced mental health problems or and particularly being in, in, in that sort of acute environment, there may be sort of all sorts of assumptions about what these places are like and what the people are like in them. And the thing that struck me first of all and most strongly of all was that the people in there were like us. They weren't other people. They weren't different. They were people like us, like our friends, like our colleagues, etc., mm-hmm. um, who were just experiencing a difficult time. I suppose the, the the a the fact that one is in there, and b that mental health problems can be so overwhelming that it's almost the only thing that you can talk about uh, to some extent. And so we talked to each other a great deal about what had led us to where we were, what experience what, what symptoms and problems we were experiencing and so it became it, it certainly was a very natural and regular part of that conversation in a hospital right and it's it a one of the moments that sort of surprised me most perhaps was being given a a program at the beginning of the week when i first arrived which said this is what i'm going to be doing during the course of the next week and on one of the days at sort of 11 o'clock in the morning, there was reference to a men's support group. And I thought, really? <laughs> Are men really going to sit around and talk about how they're feeling and things? And it was, it was wonderful that we did. And um, the power of the, those sessions in particular really struck me then and, and still does. So the, the voices that you sort of heard and I guess helped you to understand your own experience sort of remain with you to this day. Is that, is that how it feels? Yeah. And you realise that, as you said earlier on, that this is this is normal. Yeah, it is perfectly normal for people to experience problems. It would be, I think, surprising if we were able to sail through our difficult, challenging lives without having problems at times. Yes. The kind of question, really, I guess, is how how significant those challenges are, how significant those problems are, and how we respond to them. Yeah, absolutely. So. Tell us about what happened then as you came to the sort of conclusion of that hospitalisation period and you started to think about going back to work. What was it like to, to be back in the world of work? The thing about being in, in that hospital was it was a complete haven from the outside world mm. and you have to worry about nothing other than you. So there was some fear attached on one level to just coming out of hospital because that felt a very safe safe place right um but i then spent a good couple of years uh in recovery before contemplating returning to work which involved a range of things so i'm i'm fortunate enough to have a house in the middle of nowhere in france so i spent quite a lot of time there doing diy and growing things and um getting in touch with my physical self i suppose yeah uh, but also a lot of time on my own, which was helpful on one level, but on another level was um, maintaining my distance or isolation, if you like, from the world in some ways. So eventually came back to be more permanently in England and um, engaged in regular therapy and other things, but also gradually explored 
charity work. So I, I worked half a day a week in a charity shop and some time in a um, homeless hospital, gradually kind of getting used to re-engaging with people and feeling safe doing so and safe committing to things. Right. Um, until um, sort of summer of 2013 when I thought, right, I need to, I do need to earn some money. <laughs> this, this can't go on forever. And it was clear to me that for as long as going back to work went, meant going back to my old law firm, that was just too scary a prospect to contemplate. Um, the firm had been very good and had kept my position open, but it was, I think, in the April that I said to them, look, I just, I think I need to take you out of the equation in order for me to be able to feel able to contemplate going back to regular work. So having left the firm in the April, uh, I then thought about, right, what does, what could I do? Mm. And spent a few weeks, months developing an idea and then exploring it with people around a consultancy that looked at what happens in the workplace but looked at it from a number of different lenses so not just the employment law lens that I'd always looked at things but from a, a more human whole person perspective and it was it was really quite scary uh, the, the the initial period of, of re-engaging and traveling up to I mean the simple simple things like getting on a train and going up to London yes right. scary I'd have to plan the journey I'd probably have to practice it the day before if I was changing trains I would always make sure that I had a good 10 minutes so I could just sort of sit down and, and regather myself if you like I found the whole process of travel but also everybody around me very scary mm. and walking through city streets and looking at buildings thinking yeah I used to feel comfortable confident walking into these places but feeling absolutely terrified by the prospect of doing so so it took quite a while to get over what was a very physical fear and then gradually building it up and I joined so Bernstein who I worked for I joined in the September October of 2013 and we were very clear at the outset that I didn't know how much I would be able to work and whether indeed anybody would want to pay me for the work that I wanted to do, if that made sense. So the arrangements we created at the time were very much based on, well, look, if nothing happens, nothing happens, and that's fine, and nobody's lost out or anything like that. But I quickly started feeling able to work more and more, so that within, I'm going to say, probably six months, I was working five days a week or so. Wow. But the, it's interesting, because there was the, alongside the that sort of fear of re-engaging with places that I've been to before. There was a sense of dislocation. There's a poem that many people know called The Journey of the Magi, Magi by T.S. Eliot, and it talks about the three wise men visiting the infant Christ in Bethlehem. The end of the poem is, is one of the three kings reflecting some years later on that journey. And he talks about how we return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here under the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. And there's a sort of a part of me which still, I think, feels a little bit like that, that the, the process of change, I mean, going through any kind of mental health crisis, I think is going to change people. Yeah. That, that change process led to quite a significant kind of shift in my sense of purpose and value at least a, a realization of perhaps what my sense of purpose and value always had been, but I've ignored. 
which meant that there was that sense of sort of alienation of not feeling quite easy there. Uh, yes. Yes, I see. And it must have taken a lot of courage to build that back up and also to re-engage on different terms. I'm, I'm fortunate that I work with um, a bunch of people who are of fairly similar mind and, and are very supportive. Yeah. And we are, we don't make huge demands of each other. Um, and, and also, I, I suppose, away from the pressures of timesheets and billing targets and the other things that you get in a, a law firm, yeah. I do have more time to, to talk to nice people and to explore thoughts and ideas and opportunities, some of which may come to something and some of which may not, but that the, the conversation itself is enough. So I think finding that wider network of people um, has been a very helpful part in giving me the confidence that, well, confidence that what I'm doing is, is worthwhile and also that I'm not alone in it as well. Yes, absolutely. I love the phrase that you just said, that the conversation itself is enough. I think that's such a powerful thought. You know, sparking and holding a respectful conversation is is just you know such an amazing catalyst for for all sorts of things. So. Mm. I know that part of your role at Berndeen um, is around training others. So, do you find that storytelling is helpful in that sort of work? Yes, and and, and in in many ways. I mean, the I'm always conscious that if I walk into a room of people as an ex-lawyer uh, who is coming to talk to them about mental health issues, there would be a, a little bit of, uh, why are you here? What's your credibility? How are you able to talk to us about this? So mm. in any training session that I do, there will be an element of, I need to establish my credibility. And so I need to tell a little bit about what happened to me. And I think that's useful on that level. But I think it also has a an effect of, and I, it's not just me, obviously, I see this in lots of other people, but it has an effect of, of allowing other conversation. So the one of the great privileges, I think, of what I do is that we're able to create spaces in organizations and in people's days and weeks where they can actually stop and talk to each other about experiences they've had the number of times where we'll begin a, a training session and we might run around the people in the room getting them to introduce each other or introduce themselves and explain why they're here and so many of them have had experiences of problems whether themselves personally or friends or family members and this is the first time they've spoken about it publicly right and that's been a, a, a revelation but a great privilege that one is able to help create and share in that um, experience of, of exchanging stories. That's fascinating, actually. To what extent does safety form a part of that dynamic? So I, I know it's something that, you know, work in workplaces we talk about a lot is the psychological safety to actually bring your whole experience into a workplace situation. How do you kind of create that psychological safety in your in your training sessions? I suppose on a, a few levels. Um, we're very clear that what isn't happening in the room is any kind of 
individual or group therapy exercise. Right. Um, and although we we do encourage interaction and discussion only of things that people feel comfortable talking about, bearing in mind who else is in the room, and for more in-depth sessions, we will have a an informal contract, if you like, of, yeah. of what we expect from each other, always with a very clear understanding that people are able to opt out, people are able to um, take a moment outside, that people have access to the facilitator if they want to talk about something. I think that on a less formal level, again, the power of storytelling, of telling one's own story, is that it does make it okay for others to do so. Right. I was in a London Partners meeting of a big international law firm a few weeks ago, um, and they had invited me in to talk to the partners meeting. I spoke for about half an hour about, first of all, about my experience, but then about the work we do and why we think it's important and how we might be able to work with them. And there were, I'm going to say, probably 40 or 50 partners around the table. And at the end of my talk, whilst we were doing some Q&A, one of the partners along the table from me gently cleared his throat and said, I haven't talked about this before, but bearing in mind what Richard said and the discussion that we've had, it feels appropriate to say this, that three years ago I was experiencing problems of XYZ and I accessed some help through the firm's private medical insurance and I felt hugely supported and I worked through my issues and, and I'm fine. And the, the, the silence in the room following that was extraordinary because I think the reaction from a number of his partners was, first of all, I can't believe you've had the bravery to, I can't believe anybody's had the bravery to, to say that. But secondly, I can't believe it was you um, because the individual himself was apparently not the person who you, know, you one would have most expected to have A, experienced problems, but B, to be talking about them. And I think one creates, one can create that safety through one's own vulnerability but also honesty and but by by one's own presence and the way in which one shows up one can create that space for yes other people that makes perfect sense and what an amazing moment that must have been for everybody in that room you know completely game-changing you know, to to hear mm. the spontaneity of that I guess as well as the honesty of it yeah yes I, no I hope so um yeah, it was wonderful. Well, you mentioned that you're involved in the This Is Me campaign. Could you tell us a little more about what that campaign is aiming to achieve and, and what you've learned from that involvement? Absolutely. So the initiative began in Barclays, who have been at the forefront of all sorts of initiatives around mental health awareness um, over the years. And at its heart, it's a very simple initiative. They they, within Barclays, found a number of employees around the bank who were willing to record very short uh, video messages saying, my name's Richard, I work in the Reading branch, I, I am a father, I've got two children, I support Ton Hotspur, 
uh, I, I like playing golf, uh, and, and I've experienced depression, or I've experienced anxiety, or problems, or I've, whatever it might be. Very simple stories without going into any great detail, and they put them together in a video, which they then released on their intranet, and were amazed at the, the impact and the response, and the, the way in which people embraced it and that it was a, a the impact it had in terms of creating conversations and that was probably well that was several years ago now mm-hmm. and in 2015 i think uh the lord mayor of london said can we take that initiative and build it out more broadly so that the this is me campaign which very much funded and, and driven by the Lord Mayor's Appeal is encouraging other organisations across the city and then across the country to to basically do something similar to what Barclays did. And m- most often that's around those video stories, but it could also be written blogs, other ways of sharing stories, all based upon the principle that by telling stories, we break the stigma around mental illness uh, and mental ill health, and we and create cultures, environments in which we are more understanding and more supportive to people. So the storytelling is a key part of it. And we've, as I say, it began very much within the city of London, but we've now got uh, groups in different parts of the country who are developing local initiatives. Alongside the storytelling is Green Ribbon campaign, which is encouraging people to wear green ribbons, particularly in Mental Health Awareness Week in May, to show their support and understanding of mental health. And we've also been working with the Samaritans to create a series of listening tools. So an online set of tools using the Samaritans experience of listening uh, and to bring those skills into the workplace. I think possibly one of the, one of the moments that really um, brought it home for me was I was chairing a, at the Mansion House in London. So the Mansion House this is the Lord, Mayor's, Lord Mayor of London's residence in London. And it was an event to launch the 2018 This Is Me campaign. Um, And so we had 200 or so of the great and good from the city in a very splendid grand room in Mansion House. And we had on the agenda a partner from PwC who told his story of uh, mental health problems. And... As I sat there in the, the privileged position of chairing the thing, listening to this guy speak, I thought, this is extraordinary because if this 35-year-old, I don't know, partner, who's still very much kind of making his way, building his career, yeah. five years ago, 10 years ago, if this bloke had stood up and, and said what he's just said, there would have been an embarrassed silence. People, HR would have come along and taken him away it would have been a little bit awkward yeah and and here he was inspiring the room so the narrative has changed enormously and one can see one can see that power on a on a very regular basis yes yes i've I've seen that across my own career I, I think you're absolutely right and i I think you know it's an incredibly positive change and that's thanks to people like you Richard to be honest who are you know prepared to stand up and tell your story exactly as you've said so 
That's well, so you. powerful, so powerful. There was one experience was, which, is, which is not in a mental health capacity or mental health context, but mm -hmm. it, something struck me uh, in a... Uh, I was on a panel uh, a few months ago now, and somebody who... And it's about storytelling. This person was transgender, um, so was had been a man was coming on, mm -hmm. and the she described. She said, "My my boss was asking me what it's like. My boss is struggling to understand. I think some of the the difficulties I faced and stigma and other things that I experienced. And so what I said to my boss, this is this person speaking. What I said to my boss is, let's go outside. Let's go back to the the tube station that I arrive at." And come with me and just redo the walk that I do every morning. Uh, and I will tell you what's going through my head in every encounter that we make with other people and other situations as we walk that short 10 minutes from the tube station to the office. So they did that. And the, the boss kind of walked in her shoes, if you like, and, and understood what was happening in her head and absolutely transformed the boss's understanding of what that person was experiencing. And yeah. it's it's storytelling. But until we know, until we're able to actually humanize it and say, oh, okay, this is this is about A, somebody I know and respect and like and all the rest of it. And now I've had the benefit of seeing the world through their through their eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Literally walking in their shoes. Um, yeah, that's incredibly powerful. I mentioned in the introduction, Richard, that you published your memoirs in November last year. So what impact has that had? So, yes, the, the book was called This Too Will Pass. And I had, um, as we said earlier on, I think my intention had been to give people the benefit of understanding, knowing that they're not on their own, um, uh, that other people have experienced the same sorts of problems. I didn't really think about what the impact would be um i kind of wanted to get through the, the publishing publication exercise and, and hadn't really thought about what came next the number of people who have contacted me since to say the number of strangers who've contacted me since to say oh my goodness i didn't know that other people felt the way i feel so whether that's individuals talking about themselves or um i had an experience of a father contacting me about his son and the experiences that his son had had right. um, around um, all sorts of problems. And that has been deeply humbling to, um, to know that, that it's touched, touched strangers. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah. We'll never meet, um, but who it's resonated with and who have had similar experiences or different experiences, but experiences nonetheless where I've been able to, I suppose, touch them in some way. Um, so that has been uh, a, a, an amazing experience, I suppose, that I certainly hadn't expected. Yeah, that's wonderful. And congratulations on publishing that and for that reaching so many people. That's incredible. Well, thank you. I know that you're now also a Mailer Campbell trained coach. 
And I'd be really interested to hear what advice you might pass on to a trainee coach or a newly qualified coach who would like to be more aware of how they can support their clients. So if they have a client or a coachee who surfaces concerns about their mental health, what would your advice be to them? So that's a very good question. And it's something that I've talked to the faculty at Mailer Campbell about quite a lot. Before joining Burn Dean, I had uh, done a foundation course in psychotherapy and counselling, and I had uh, intended to then go on to do a master's course to become a psychotherapist. And I abandoned that at the time because I didn't think I could do that and work at Burn Dean. And it was some years later that I then came to do the the master's course at um, Mayor Campbell, and it felt like it was almost coming back to that same point, but from a slightly different direction, that it was how can we help and how can I help and support people on a one to one basis rather than from a psychotherapeutic perspective more from a coaching perspective but the what was very interesting was that so much of the the reading and the learning and the approaches seemed to come from a, a very similar point um it was simply that the name and the, the the angle i suppose that the practitioner was coming from was different and i do believe that there isn't a line, let alone a clear line, uh, between the one-to-one support one sees in counselling or psychotherapy and the one-to-one support that one sees in coaching. And I think that all coaches need, it would benefit from understanding that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as a result, to develop more understanding of mental illness and to therefore develop the confidence not to be scared of exploring with somebody with a client how they are um now what is what do i mean by that i'm not suggesting remotely that coaches should be counseling therapizing people uh, but i think bearing in mind the unique quality of a coaching relationship and the space that it provides to a client to to talk about anything I think coaches need to be aware that what may come out there could be really quite difficult for for the client um, and indeed for the coach. And to therefore, the more information one has, the more understanding one has, the more confident one can feel in dealing with that situation. I, I'll give you an example. I have a, a client who, in my first coaching session with him, he described having suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. and it's it's through the work that I've been doing around mental health that I felt capable and confident of engaging with him on that and of making an assessment with him as to how serious those thoughts were and assessing the kind of level of risk and what we needed to do in order to to keep him safe. Right. Now that's, I'm not suggesting that's going to be a common occurrence in people's coaching practices, but I do think that, as I say, the, the quality, the nature of a coaching relationship is one which disclosing really quite difficult feelings and thoughts. So I think one of the things that I would suggest, and, and it's one of, one of the things that we deliver in a training capacity is something called mental health first aid, which is a a model that's been developed around the world, but has been operating in the UK for um, more than 10 years now. And it's around equipping people to feel 
confidence and competence to uh, support somebody in a first aid capacity. So not treating them, not diagnosing them, but in order to be able to support and help somebody who may be experiencing a short or longer term crisis to help them think about what's going on um, and to explore what sort of professional and other help they may want to try to access in order to help support them. And I think those skills would be quite useful for the coaches to develop. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an excellent recommendation. And I and I totally understand the phrase that you used earlier in that description, which is about not to be scared to enable people to open up. And it, it is that fear, isn't it, of not having the right answer, not knowing how to cope with that situation that sort of prevents people, I think, from allowing people the space to have that open conversation about how mm-hmm. they're feeling. It's such One of the things that comes up in all sorts of environments is the it's professionals. What we're uh, encouraged or the, the, the thinking that we tend to develop is that if you come to me with a problem, I have to provide the solution. And, and I think that so often gets in the way of us being able to support people who may be in difficulty for all sorts of different reasons. And if we could give ourselves permission not to have the answer. Yes. Um, not to have to solve, but simply to to support and provide our humanity, then we will free ourselves to be able to be more kind, more supportive, more helpful to the individual. If we're obsessed with, oh my God, there's a problem here, I've got to solve it, uh, then that's all going to get in the way of, of, of what the person actually needs. That's such an insightful comment. And isn't that the power of non-directive coaching? A really a good summary of, of you know, where that mm. takes you. Yeah, no, I, I, and, and as I say, I think the, the, the overlaps with the support that we give to people one-to-one in all sorts of capacities, whether it's as a coach, a friend, a family member, a therapist, I think there are strong overlaps. Um, and one doesn't have to be an expert to be supportive. Yeah. Well, and to repeat that phrase that you used earlier, you know, sometimes the conversation itself is enough. Um, mm. You know, I think just holding that fact um, is quite powerful. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's been amazingly inspirational. I've really, really enjoyed listening to you talk about that, Richard. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that honest insight. I really do think, you know, it helps enormously. The more conversations like this we have, you know, the more it helps everybody. So thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Richard for his openness and his honest good advice. If you'd like to find out more about Richard, you'll find some information, including a link to the details of his book in our show notes. You can get those from the Mailer Campbell website. So go to mailercampbell.com. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Please feel welcome to share this episode with a friend or a colleague who you feel would benefit from listening to it too.